1: My name is Rich Schmidt. It's May Fourteenth, 2018, and we're here at Yamhill Valley Vineyards with Dennis Berger and Elaine McCall. And we'll start by asking you the nice, easy question, which is, why wine?
0: (laughs) Why wine? I had been uh, an amateur winemaker. I grew up close to the Napa Valley in California, and my father made wine, or things he called wine. (laughs) My mother added it to Oil and called it salad dressing. But um, so I had an early introduction into wine. Being an amateur winemaker, it was berry wines. And then in the early 1980s, I heard Oregon was growing a vinifera, Pinot Noir. So Elaine and I looked for one acre of property so we could plant a half an acre of Pinot Noir so we could be amateur winemakers.
2: We were. I had been um, not really much of a wine drinker at all. I mean, my parents, being European, you know, gave me little sips of stuff to drink occasionally on Sunday lunch, and I just thought, ugh, do I have to gag this? (laughs) What was it? Grave, I think. Anyhow, always white down at lunchtime. But uh, then I went and lived in France for three years and really liked uh, Burgundy because it was cheap Burgundy. Red Burgundy was nicer than cheap red Bordeaux, so I like the burgundy style. I came, married this gentleman, uh, came to this country, and he said, oh, I made wine, and uh, let me introduce you to some delicious California cabs. And I said, oh, no, this is terrible. It's so tannic, so oaky, oh, really? But then he said, no, I think actually what I'd like to do is make wine but from Pinot Noir because we're in Oregon. I thought, okay, this is doable. So yes, we were going to buy an acre of land on the way to the coast.
0: That changed. Uh, We were both uh, in academia at uh, OHSU on the faculty there and we were, like academics are, seduced by the wrong things. (laughs) And we had about $25,000 to spend that bought you one acre close in to Portland, which was our original idea. But if you went out to Newburgh, it got you 10 acres. And if you went out to McMinnville, it got you 40 acres. So unfortunately, we went for the big acreage. And then subsequently, every local farmer saw doctors from Portland and offered us the adjoining pieces of property.
2: Which we thought was a good idea. The first piece we found, we had been, it was raining in August. We took Dennis's two boys out. They said, "Lo, let's play Monopoly today. He, Dennis wisely said, let's not. Let's look for vineyard property. And he'd found three pieces in the, in the Oregonian. And one of them even said, good for grapes. So we knew it was good for, grape.
0: for grapes. <laughs>
2: And so we looked at That's the first two this was the third piece it had been raining all afternoon we made the turn off highway 18 it stopped raining and a That's rainbow right. appeared over the what turned out to be our vineyard so we just knew it was perfect it was 34 acres not one acre wow we knew so nothing within three years
0: we owned a full section 640 <laughs> acres from the top of this can- ridge to the top of this ridge from oldsville road to muddy valley now we eventually got smart and sold 450 acres, which is now Maserah right behind us. Of course. So that's that's how we moved from an amateur berry winemaker to Pinot Noir to a commercial vineyard and winery operation.
2: But we were we were modest, somewhat modest. We decided we would just grow grapes at the beginning. This lasted about a week, and then I said, "Well, yeah." We should, we're going to make wine ultimately, we should just build a winery. So we built the winery in Well, back 1985. Up, we bought Anyhow. the
0: property in the fall of 82, <coughs> mm-hmm. planted 20 acres in the spring Spring of 83. We bought barrels from France in the spring of 83, and I worked the night shift at Sokal Blosser and made our first wine. on. 10 tons of Pinot Noir that we bought from Highland in 1983, started building this facility at the end of 84, opened in 85, or had our first crusher in 85.
2: Open for tasting in 86. And we had yeah, a we wine.
0: We tried to open for tasting at Thanksgiving of 85. Well, that's right. We had no doors. That's <laughs> true. Fortunately, there was a snowstorm, and everyone in Yanhill County was snowed out, so we didn't have any uh, guests, because we couldn't have accommodated them anyway. So fate, just like the rainbow, favored as well.
2: So we ultimately opened in April of 86 Six. in this building. And I don't know if we had doors on the building by then. We did. We did. That was good. <laughs> and we had a huge line of people on account of the 1983.
1: So your wine had gotten out there and people had had heard about you and tried your wine and they were anxious to come see.
0: Big time. We were first represented by Stephen Carey, Carey Oregon Wines. And in 1984, Stephen invited me to the Steamboat Conference, um, winemaking conference, and I presented the 83 wine. And it got huge attention. And Stephen was marketing for... Um, Erath, for Adelsheim, for Bethel Heights, for Amity, for Ponzi, for a variety of the early producers, and wasn't having much success. So he conceived this concept called the Burgundy Challenge. And this was in 1985, introducing the 83's. And the reason for that is that the French called the 83 vintage, the vintage of the century. Mm -hmm. Now that's about every three years (laughs) in France. So he hatched this concept, all of us in Oregon bought into it, and he had to sell it to the International Wine Center in New York City. And their first comment was, oh, you don't want to do this. Those 83 burgundies are stunning. Mm -hmm. They'll just blow little Oregon out of the water. Eventually, Eventually, convinced them to do it and part of the reason was that those were 40 50 60 dollar bottles of wine Oregon was less than 20 bucks i think our average price was 12 to 14 at the time so if we landed a wine in the top few we would be a great buy sure so we went back to the international wine center and with them selected the judges and he wanted The importers of French wines, he wanted sommeliers, he wanted people familiar with Burgundies. And the head of the International wines, says, oh God, you don't want to do that. You're just going to get blown out of the water. But that's what happened. They tried for 40 judges. I think they ended up with 22 or in low 20s number Mm -hmm. of judges. And it was a blind tasting and the panel was asked two things. What's the best wine? And is it French or is it Oregon? Now, we were so pleased, our first wine made the cut. Yeah, So we because had to they did some tasting. We decided which, ones, which Rex, Oregon wines we going to do. Hill. It. Yeah. And we had gotten into the top ten to go against the Burgundies. So sure. Elaine and I were, you know, our first product, fantastic. It was our baby. (laughs) We were very excited. It was exciting. Seven Burgundies to go from 83 to go against 10 Oregon Pinot Noirs. And the tasting, they had designed several hours, but it was over quickly. And they had no trouble picking the top 10. And they had absolutely no trouble deciding that the first three were French, number five was French, and Oregon maybe they thought snuck in at four. And then they unveiled. Mm-hmm. Oregon was one, two, and three, and five. And we were number one. And this was repeated again in Chicago because the French said, oh, or the importers of the French wine said, oh, our wines have suffered in the. And then it would the Oregon wines stand up, stand yeah. up, hold mm-hmm. up. And it was repeated two years later, um, and once again, the same order. That goes back to what Elaine said. We had a huge line out the door when we opened in because the they all wanted 86. to taste this wine that, taste had, that
2: had won, point. sure. And we oh. only allowed them one bottle of it, and the price for a bottle of that wine was $16. We thought we were really hitting the high points. So seriously expensive, but people bought it. I, we were amazed.
0: So we had a running start in the business. Sure. Yeah, it was a huge help. Got in over our heads, but persevered. Sure.
1: Once you decided, let's back up just a little bit here, once you yeah. decided to buy the, buy the land and you decided we're going to make wine, how did you go from amateur berry winemaker to learning how to make Pinot Noir?
0: Well, I worked one, <laughs> I took some courses at Davis. You know, we were, I was a full-time professor at OHSU. So I took a couple of weekend courses at Davis. I worked the night shift at Sokol Blosser, got great help from the winemaker there, Bob McRitchie, and another Oregon winemaker who made sparkling wine and worked with me on the night shift, Fred Arterberry, <laughs> And so... I learned a lot of the ropes. As a microbiologist, I wasn't daunted, and a scientist, I wasn't daunted by a lot of the chemistry, a lot of that aspect of winemaking, Mm -hmm. but I didn't understand machinery and nuance, which I picked up. I was the winemaker for the first...
2: Five, six, no. Eight years. Yeah, eight years.
0: And eventually, Stephen Carey wanted to move out of... The business of distributing, mm-hmm. and move into winemaking. And so he was my cellar master for two years, and then took over winemaking from me in 1991.
2: You always said things got better and, after that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the wine we started making good. Wine. <laughs> but no, so, we didn't yeah.
2: know a great deal. I mean, we bought we bought tanks. I remember in 85, you were out here, and the tanks were on their sides. On the grassy slopes up there, because we hadn't managed to get them upright, and
0: um, this was this was hands-on. Mm-hmm. And somebody I was the called. Winemaker. We we trimmed the pruned the vines. Oh yeah, we absolutely. Did. We but tried to do everything, so it was learning from the ground up. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, we and I got a lot of help. Other at at the time, which is probably still true today, you want the industry notion was to raise the whole wine industry, so. David Adelsheim, Dick Ponzi were there to give us help and assistance, taste with us, show us the ropes, answer any questions, make sure we were making a good product.
2: But who who was it that said you should get the this particular type of grapevine to plant? Where did we?
0: I took a course in Newberg from an orchardist. and they had a special lecture when it came to grapevines from a company called Winquist and Seeley. Okay. And they presumably were planting vineyards at the time, and we hired them to select the clones and plant. And we first planted with two clones, Pomard, we got 10 acres in Pomard and 10 acres in Badensville.
2: And also wow. Chardonnay. Did they plant the Chardonnay? Because we planted that. Let's not
0: talk about that.
2: We planted the Chardonnay <laughs> in the
0: beginning. <laughs> we didn't have, the, at the time, there weren't the Dijon clones of Chardonnay, so these were California mm-hmm. Chardonnay varieties, which never got really right. They
2: never really got right. But, but yeah, we, they planted, but we came out and cut everything back to two buds, so we would work, we'd go to work early work out however many hours, in the car by about 3.30 out here from the, from the lab, because I worked full-time as a research scientist at OHSU. Um, and Dennis was this full-time professor. So out we come, and we, we hand cut back to two buds, this, this what seemed an increasingly large acreage every day. If it really, there's all this to go? <laughs> and then we get back in the car once it got dark, and drive home, and make dinner, and go to bed, and then sort of rinse and repeat next day. And after the third day, we didn't have food, so we had to stop and buy some food at the local grocery store. When we got home, and we opened the doors, and we both sort of rolled out, and neither of us could actually stand up straight. <laughs> Ugh! It was a lot of work, but um, we did that. And we, of course, we we then we had to um, fence it because, of course, there were deer tracks all over. And I remember driving up one Saturday morning up the bumpy road which is now tarmac, and um, we looked out and there was the deer with her two babies showing the babies the difference between the little Pinot Noir new shoots and these were the ones that had just started sprouting and these were our two, our two shoots and the babies would come along and try the Chardonnay honey boom yeah. and Dennis got suddenly sort of riled up. but. Um, We did, that of course brings them back to nothing and then they start again and you've got a bush and so you're sort of back to zero for that plant for the year. But we put in, do you remember pulling the New Zealand fencing?
0: At the time New Zealand fence was the way to go rather than a barrier fence, so electronic five wire so high and it was advertised to keep out 98% of deer. That's not enough the 2% put us back a year by snipping off the tops. So, you know, we were the only vineyard out here. So we didn't have the advantage of screening off by other vineyards and Sure. Okay.
1: What were some of the other sort of unforeseen challenges when you started, in addition to like deer? What were some of the things you weren't necessarily expecting out of either the, the wine growing or of the business? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, we certainly weren't expecting the challenge of managing the deer and how long it took to get the vines in a state where they would produce. Mm-hmm. Um, as we mentioned, we planted the wrong clone of grapes uh, in the Chardonnay arena, and mm-hmm. so that eventually meant 10, 10 acres were pulled out. Um, we had uh, other grape growing challenges. Um, new clones came in. At the time, in 1983, we didn't have virus-resistant root stocks, resistant root stocks. Sure. So we've got um, a certain percentage of the acreage that is susceptible. So there were a variety of things at the time that weren't well worked out, the clonal varieties, the root stocks. Um, As Elaine mentioned, we basically bought the property because the sun opened up, a rainbow appeared, and the ad in the newspaper said, great for grapes." I mean, how could we go wrong?
2: My mother was horrified. And she's a nice Scottish lady living in Britain. Her daughter's already gone to live in the colonies, which is bad. (laughs) And the other side, I mean, not the nice New York side where she could get easily, no, the other side of the country. And she came and she pulled me aside one day and she said, Elaine, do you know anything about the soil? And I said, well, the guy who sold us the first piece uh, had cattle on it. And so he had dug something so that he could back his pickup in and just have the cattle walk on. So there was, so, so there was a you know, two to three foot cut in the soil and we could look. And it looked good. It was brown. It looked healthy. <laughs> There was nice grass growing on it, It seemed perfect. Plus it was on a slope, as promised, great for grapes. And she said afterwards, I just blenched. She said, I I knew knew more about soil types than you did. I said, yeah, we didn't really (laughs) know much actually at that. And finally, we did see a soil map and I was astonished because I thought, oh, well, good for grapes just would mean the whole property, one soil type, Mm -hmm. wrong. It's dozens of different soil types and well, that, they will weave around. So it's.
0: contributes to the compl- complexity that we get in our wines today. There are five different prominent soil types on the property. We're in the foothills of the.
2: Coast Range.
0: Coast Range. So we're on marine sedimentary soils rather than volcanic, which contributes to blacker fruit characters in the wine. Um, We do everything for complexity in the wine. So not only the soil types, we have three different types of trellises. Mm -hmm. We have seven different clones planted on the property. And then we buy oak barrels from five different center of France forests. So everything to get complexity. If you want to see a winemaker wilt, just suggest that the wine is rather simple. (laughs) because <laughs> we're all about whatever is whether it's food or wine what is interesting to our palate is the complexity that makes it a, a, a challenge for us and an interest for us so it's all about getting that complexity into the bottle.
2: I think some of the other I'm just thinking oh, about challenges your, uh,
0: of, of winemaking. Well, we didn't yeah. have tanks we bought tanks from, used tanks from California we bought
2: We bought Dairy
0: tanks. Do you remember driving
2: home from Thanksgiving, I think, in November? It must have been 84, with a stemmer crusher.
0: In the back of our truck.
2: Uh, (laughs) Uh, Coming over the the Two used barrels
0: (laughs) and a stemmer crusher in the snow coming over the (laughs) Siskiyou.
2: And then we had a a press that was, that must have been a used press too, which was. What
0: a used Wilmus press that had this heavy pan in the bottom that the juice drained into. And it was just took everything to get this chained up underneath the press. The amount of work. And we didn't have a forklift. Um,
2: we didn't have anywhere to stack the cases. <laughs> Once so <when> we bottled,
0: <laughs> we didn't know about pallets, so we just stacked everything in the corner of the winery. 40 feet tall, just right up in a great big pyramid, and we'd go up and take off the top when you wanted to well, move. Yes, we'd have it sort of you
2: know, sort of like one of those ziggurats so he you could actually it climb it. We thought it was fine.
0: It wasn't. A lot of this is very embarrassing. Now, the person that <laughs> hates this story about how we ended up in the McMinnville AVA is a recent winemaker here in Oregon, um, Robert Britton. Hmm. He's looked at all the wine regions, all the AVAs, and he selected the McMinnville for his vineyard because of the soil types and the complexity. And he doesn't ever like us talking about how we just randomly, because of the ad, the newspaper said, great for grapes, ended up here.
2: Now he's and he actually bottles his individual blocks, which are very much related to the soil types. I think doesn't he? I think he does. Isn't he? So. What else was difficult? Well, everything was difficult. I mean, Dennis was making the wine, um, and at some point, your good buddy from graduate school, David Henriks, and his wife moved here from Pullman, and so the two of them would make the wine. So they're both working full-time, and both days of every weekend, they're making wine. There was one year, or a little over a year, where you worked out that you had worked 56 weeks without any vacation without or without a day off because it was five days at work and then two days at the wine at the winery and when we were building this place I remember I of course was doing nothing except raising the two tiny children who are now big and one of them is the general manager <laughs> um, but I I remember tiling the tasting room floor with an infant carrier beside me with our elder daughter and she was two months old and I was tiling that. And then two months later we opened. So you know it was a challenge but then everybody has challenges one way or another. But I think the endless work was hard for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, how did you, how did you keep going? How did you convince yourself that this was a good idea that you needed to, that it would, that it would grow and prosper?
0: Well,
2: well, yeah.
1: Remember, you're into
0: it as a big commitment and it's a financial commitment mm-hmm. and as we all know in this business, it's very capital intensive. So by the time you've got so much invested, you don't have the option of walking away or changing your mind. You're in.
2: Plus, right <laughs> around then, before we even started build, making the first wine here, we'd already we were just into the the Burgundy challenge and so we had had early success, so I think that's what sort of kept us going. Anything?
0: So the wines really, I think, dramatically changed when Stephen came on as full-time winemaker in 1991. So he started um, with representing us in late 84, 85, and he just passed away in the last couple of weeks. So that was a long tenure here. He spent the last three years here as winemaker emeritus. But he influenced our style uh, of wines and uh, the clones we produced from and whether or not we had a reserve and the definition of our reserve. So it was a huge influence on the property and the industry.
1: Speaking of that, when you started here, like you said, you were the first vineyard in the area. And, and well,
0: we were the second vineyard in the McWinwell
1: AVA, Highland. Was the okay. first. We're the first
0: winery and the largest winery in the
1: AVA. How did you go about? Uh, how did, What was the industry like in the area? What was what were the consumer the customers like? What was the the camaraderie like? What was it like being here relatively alone in the in McMinnville?
0: Well, we didn't have the AVAs at the time, so we were Yamhill County. We had a Yamhill County Wineries Association. Uh-huh. I think for a while you were. President of the association, or something. I think so. <laughs> it was a long it was, time it ago. It was,
2: and it was a small group. We had, I remember, we had a Yamhill County's Winery Association bag for putting bottles of wine in when we sold them, and there were seventeen of us in Yamhill County.
0: But what are they today? Four hundred? Two hundred? I don't know what the number is. A lot. Yeah, a <laughs> lot. So there was, we functioned as a Yamhill Winery group. It wasn't the AVAs. Mm-hmm. But people
2: in, people in the business were incredibly supportive. I mean, when they'd finished their harvest, they'd come and visit. I mean, slightly to gloat that they were finished yeah, and, if and we you
0: we got heard. done early, boy, we went over to Amity and made sure we drank wine while they worked.
2: But no, if anything was going wrong, if, if you had an equipment failure or a shortage of somebody something, somebody was there, people would just pitch in and help, and that is still the case.
0: So it was very collaborative, very, very supportive. Co- yes, you didn't feel that this was group.
2: competition and you were, they were going to try and shut you down. Now one,
0: one change on the commercial side is when you open for Thanksgiving or for a holiday, you had a line out the door. People couldn't, and a lot of customers from Washington.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, today, there's a lot of competition in tasting rooms, and there's hundreds of tasting rooms that are open on all these holidays. So you have to find a way to compete, with either both with style and price. Sure.
1: So you mentioned earlier that you're both a uh, scientific background, both worked at OHSU. Tell us a little bit about sort of how you ended up at OHSU academically, and then sort of your tenure there as you transitioned into, into this. Okay, I can tell this one.
2: <laughs> yeah, go ahead. He'll probably get it right. If not, I'll juggle.
1: So um,
0: I got my Ph.D. in immunology, microbiology and immunology, in 1969, and was recruited by the Department of Surgery at OHSU to run the tissue matching and transplant immunosuppressive program for the renal kidney transplant centers. so I was a research scientist running um, the immunology side of renal transplantation um, and I went off on sabbatical in 1979 uh, and worked at St. Thomas Hospital in London. I was there for a little over a year and that's where I met another scientist who was working and had just come back from a three-year postdoctoral fellowship at the Pasteur Institute. -hmm. and was working at the Rain Institute in St. Thomas Mm -hmm. Hospital. And so we met in some faculty meetings and we made a scientific trip together. And then we had a one year phone romance that cost more than the airline tickets once (laughs) a month. And we got married in London in eighty one.
2: And so before that you know that summer before we got married I came over here and I talked with faculty at OHSU and um, so I had a position working in hematology oncology as my research at that point was working on the cells that line your blood vessels the vascular endothelium and um, so I came and after six weeks, I started working there, so maybe in November of 1981. And I continued doing that until our second daughter was born. And then I retired from that, and stayed home doing the only job that I ha- has ever reduced me to tears on the job. And <laughs> so, um, and that was when we were doing the winery at the same time. All sort of crazy times. But.
1: How long did you do both? How long did you stay working full time in OHSU and still trying to, and running this? Uh, One
0: of the other things I came home with other than a spouse was a new technology that wasn't yet prominent in the US called monoclonal antibodies. And I formed a company around it uh, and took that company public in 1986, so I left academia in 1985, and my employment transferred to being a sort of serial biotech executive. So I've been chairman and CEO of four publicly traded biotech companies, and I'm still associated with a couple of them, and I'm on the board of three publicly traded biotech companies today. Um, so,
2: so from when we started jobs. buying the first piece of property in 1982, you were always working full-time but for the first four years at OHSU and, and then you moved on to the other companies full-time because for a while there you were juggling OHSU and the other companies yeah. and the winery just for fun. Um, yeah. So it was probably quite a relief when Stephen started making the well, wine.
0: It was absolutely critical, yeah, that um, we had a full-time winemaker rather than a part-time academic.
1: So talk about a little bit about those sort of the, the growth during that stage in the '90s and then the '2000s as you were as you were gr- growing the land, adding adding more vineyards, making more wine, uh, and Stephen was making your wine. Now, how, was there a was there, was there a point when you felt like you had made it, like you were no. <laughs> wine, winemakers now or wine owners Next now? year maybe, I
2: don't know. <laughs> no, always, always thinking we were part of the business, and mm, certainly owners, because we were impoverished. And winemakers, yes you were, but then Stephen was, but you, we were always involved. But I don't think you sort of think, wow, so can rest on laurels have made it, are wealthy. No.
0: Collectively, Oregon had a lot of great vintages during these times. In the 80s, it was 83, 85, 88. In the 90s, 92, 93, 94, 98. And then in the early 2000s, there was a whole series of great vintages Mm -hmm. which set the Oregon Pinot Noir on the map. So 2002, 02, 03, 05, 08. Just terrific vintages. and we've had now another string of great vintages. 14. In 2012, 2014, 15, 16. So I think um, that's contributed to the prominence of Oregon as the Pinot Noir mecca.
2: And we, I mean, we dinked around doing various things at the beginning. I mean, we had Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but then we had, we planted some Riesling. We had Gewürztraminer. No, I'm not kidding. We even had the uh, winemaker's folly. We had a row of Cabernet Sauvignon, which I guarantee never got even close to ripe. And we ripped that out after three years. <laughs> um, uh, we planted raspberries. We met somebody who said, oh, well they could provide us with trees for not very much money. So we planted, um, evergreen magnolias and this tree here and birch trees there and then we had to go around watering them by hand all through the summer, so we ended up with fewer than 200 trees. And I can't remember, we planted up way up into Lakeview and up above
0: there.
1: And so now you're you're making roughly 15,000 cases a year.
0: We grow on on 100 acres of vineyard, we grow about 250
2: tons. Or more, um, some or years. Or more,
0: up to 300 tons. Uh, Pinot Blanc, which took the place of our Chardonnay, mm-hmm. sets more than five tons to the acre, and it gets it ripe. So it's a huge producer, and it is. Uh, Pinot Blanc is a very hardy, resistant grape. So... Um, it's about the last thing we bring in every year, other than the Riesling. Because um, we do still have and some that Riesling. that bumps up the um, yield per acre from, now you want between two and two and a half or so for Pinot Noir, but once you get five or more tons from Pinot Blanc, that pushes you from 15, for 250 to 300 tons. So that means we're somewhere between 15 and 20,000 cases. So we sell some grapes every year. We like to keep in that sort of 12 to 15,000 case range, which meets our demands for our product. So we market in 27 states, a little bit in Ontario, in Canada, in Bermuda, in Denmark. Um, so we have good distribution, but the key is to match what you produce to what you can sell.
2: Sometimes we have an awful lot of Pinot Blanc.
1: (laughs) 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 What was that experience like as you were trying to, especially in the early days, trying to sell wine in a place that wasn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily as cultured as, say,
0: Portland? The most difficult, expensive market to sell wine is Portland. In Portland, how many competitors do we have? Sure. 400? How many make great Pinot Noir? 200? How many make stunning Pinot Noir? 50, 100? you compete for shelf space. It's expensive, it's hand delivered, it's... Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes so. delivered
2: by pregnant ladies. Back in the day, yeah. <laughs> after we had got some success, I, well, we had, I must have been Stephen would say, okay, we sold five cases here, and you know, this deli is taking two cases, and this thriftway is taking five cases, and we would load them up in the back of my Subaru, and the big deal was if you could deliver them they had to pay within 24 hours so this was money coming to you and so I I would deliver these cases of wine staggering in you know on the gross belly and people say oh let me help which was good (laughs) and then they'd write you a check right there and I'd come away thinking yes we have some money which is good because you never... By law they
0: were required to pay yeah which was um, maybe ill-conceived because they didn't order much because they had to pay for it on-site. Sure.
2: Yeah, so they were or- ordering sort of small but, case um, numbers.
0: So in Manhattan restaurants, or uh, East Coast restaurants, I have far few competitors. So that's where our effort goes in yeah. marketing and distribution.
1: Um, and so now that the, the, the area has grown up a bit around you, like you mentioned May Sarah's right behind you, uh, have you felt like you've been, you, you mentioned the treatment you got as a newcomer in the industry, have you felt like you've been able to sort of pass that on to, the, Absolutely. to your new neighbors?
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of our neighbors are very self-sufficient and even help us today. So it's not just one-way street. We're not just the old mm-hmm. guy that helps the newcomers. It goes both ways. Sure. Um, Jay Wrigley. Judy and John Wrigley, who have a uh, AVA up on the top of the hill here in Sheridan, uh, bailed us out when our stemmer crusher failed. Failed. <laughs> Just talk. Maybe four years ago, and they had they had a very young vineyard and finished very early. Yeah. And so they trucked their stemmer crusher over <laughs> here, which took us through the whole vintage. So it goes both ways. Sure.
2: And you test it out the day or two before or whatever, but you think, oh, this is fine. And then when it comes down to it, it's not fine. <laughs> uh.
1: So in addition, besides just sort of pure size, what are some of the biggest changes you've noticed in the industry since you've been a part of it? What is, what is di- more, most different now than in the early 1980s?
0: Well, there's certainly the recognition everywhere across the country and abroad that this is the home of great Pinot Noir.
2: Yeah, that's true. And, and you,
0: If you go and you travel <laughs> in Italy, the best thing you can do is take a case of your wine and trade everywhere you go. Everyone wants to try Oregon Pinot Noir. Yeah. So that's a huge change from the early days when you couldn't get somebody that you walk into a, a wine shop and you couldn't get them to open it.
2: I think. You know, um, I think in the industry, Um, people have become um, much better winemakers. I think it was probably like us, we were a little bit vague at the beginning, Um, but I think people have really cleaned up their act, things are done very well, much more precisely, and some of that is, um, well, it's as a result of, of learning, but also things like Um, the Steamboat Conference where you know and that sort of thing where technology
0: has also changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have more sophisticated filtration methods that don't steal away flavors from the wine rather than plate and frame filters that we started with and then diatomaceous earth filters now you have cross flow filtration and very sophisticated methods to
2: Make, make, better wine, better make better wine. Well, now,
0: rather than home bottling, there's mobile bottling. We didn't have any mobile bottling at the time. So
2: I remember hand-bottling hand, hand bottling the Riesling with a little machine that would, could take six bottles and you were spinning the foils on after you got the... So It was, we're, it was all very much hands-on. If on. you
0: <laughs> visit our tasting room, you'll see even our high-end $70 bottle of Pinot Noir, or Super Reserve Tall poppy, is in a screw cap. Mm-hmm. So we take the, the lesson from New Zealand, where all wines are in screw cap, that that's the best closure for the product, particularly if you want to age the wine. For the longest time there was this notion that you had to have oxygen exchanged through the cork. Mm-hmm. Well, all the oxygen you ever need to age the wine is in the bottle. Nothing good happens through the cork. So that's my little message for screw caps.
2: <laughs> but we went through
0: oh, cork. We went through different kinds of cork, and, and then we went through composite.
2: They were really hard to get out of bottles.
0: Oh, yeah, polycarbonate, uh, composite. They were rock closure. hard, you
2: couldn't get, you couldn't, you couldn't pull the great cork. Great for the wine,
0: but the wine steward in a restaurant couldn't get the thing out of the bottle. And so we even thought about um, marketing screws that only had one turn. So you could turn it in once. If you put it all the way in, it compresses out, and you can't get it out. If you put it in one turn, it won't pull apart, and you can get it out. So that didn't work. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so we eventually migrated to... Um,
2: to screw caps, caps and finally on, on, as Dennis says, on everything.
0: And we've got, you know, we've been in this business since 1983, so we have 92, 93, 94 vintages in screw cap. Mm-hmm. So we can tell you that 20 years later, that's the perfect closure. They, they're that's still good. perfect wines. Mm-hmm. And side by side, you'll like the 94 from screw cap better than you will in Cork.
2: And so the other thing is when you're pouring wine, I, I was at something recently with um, people opening up their various wines, and they were all pulling the corks and sniffing them, or pouring a little taste and sniffing them. And I was just unscrewing because I knew I knew they were going to be good inside. They're not suddenly going to—they're not going to be corked for a start because there's no cork involved. So that's that's. I think I it's always a tell good closure. Another advantage
0: when you went to a restaurant, you wouldn't pay corkage. <laughs>
2: You pay scrimmage. You You (laughs) (laughs) You have to pay (laughs) scrimmage. They still do that.
1: How were you able to sort of keep tabs on technological changes in the industry when when you were so so stretched so thin across this job and others? How were you able to kind of keep tabs on those things and have time to experiment and and figure out what you wanted?
0: Well, we are both technically minded. um, So we've been in science. Publisher Parish Academics for most of our careers Mm -hmm. so I don't think either of us were daunted by that side of the business it was the nuance
2: no but I don't think we were necessarily as you were probably more up on it than I was but I think sometimes I would be a bit behind them really you want to do this why (laughs) oh yeah I've read this or so-and-so told me okay so there's no
0: perfect experiment in the wine business And, you know, you think about, well, I'm going to crop this row lower than this row. I'm going to look at intensity. And there's always a difference in the elevation or the subtlety. It's not like the science I'm used to where you can conduct the perfect experiment. But we do experiment every harvest. There's always something. And still to this day, I'm here living at our farmhouse on the property for the entire month of harvest. I mean, that's all other businesses cease because I still want to be involved at that level. Um,
2: and so yes, we're still doing a lot of experiments even We look unt- at
0: stems, we look at <laughs> yeah. adding in whole stuff, clusters, you know, my, so
2: chilling it, at doing this and that. My you know.
0: winemaker, Errol Eberly and our assistants go to Steamboat every year. They come back with new notions and when we want to try this cold the datch and we want to try this with stems. Well, you know i'm usually there was some eye
2: rolling there was some eye rolling about
0: <laughs> but i always <laughs> let him do it of course <laughs> so ariel who's our winemaker today um is a osu graduate and worked um for a biotech company in chemistry that i was running in corvallis <laughs> for a while and then was hired here as an intern for harvest I think this is about nine years ago.
2: Yeah, they And
0: did a great job through harvest. So I asked her to stay, and she worked in the vineyard with the vineyard crew managing the pruning that <laughs> winter. Worked the next harvest, and then we sent her to New Zealand to work an additional two harvests, two years in a row, to gain a lot of experience. And so she was under Stephen Carey's wing for about five years. And then as Stephen's health deteriorated three years ago, she's taking over management of harvest and management of the entire winemaking process and has been fully in charge the last two years. And is bringing another level of subtlety and sophistication to our style. So we're, we're very pleased. Excellent.
1: What are you proudest of from your time in the industry?
2: Apart from still standing. Yeah, (laughs) I think we're very
0: proud that we are still standing. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a number of of us level of age in the business where wineries have sold and there hasn't been someone in the next generation that either was available to take over or wanted to take over. Mm -hmm. And my son is our national sales and marketing director and our daughter is our general manager. So we have someone that's going to run the business and keep it as a family business going forward. Excellent. So we're very proud of that.
2: Because it was actually always family, not just the two of us, but um, Dennis, one of Dennis's brothers, was the architect for the for this building.
0: Yeah, my oldest brother was the architect for the building.
2: And his elder brother, his other elder brother. Uh, designed the label, the first label. Yes. Of course, the label's gone through many iterations, but always the birds. <laughs> um,
0: My oldest son worked a couple all-nighters here during harvest when we didn't have any help. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Bringing the kids.
0: Second son, as I mentioned, all the, he lives in Whitefish, Montana, but he's our national sales and marketing director. He's in Chicago at the tasting today. Or, mm-hmm. on his way to Chicago today mm-hmm. for the Our
2: elder daughter has worked various harvests and um, worked in the tasting room for a year or two, I think. And the younger one also works the
0: harvest, but
2: now general manager. So yes, everybody works.
0: If you stay around very long, we'll put you to work. No one's immune. Uh,
2: Bottling is tomorrow, though, so you
1: know. Yeah, we're bottling thirty-five hundred cases in the next. Good opportunity for you. Goodness gracious do you do you have any goals in mind for the business other than uh, do you have anything you're planning to change or anything you're planning to try or any
2: any endlessly improving because it's because it's you know it's a it's a, a moving target you always have to improve and try and try and get better there's always something that you think wow should I have done this or that or how about this blend or whatever um but other goals, what do you think?
0: Um, I want to see our distribution expand to the point that we're not selling any of the grapes every year. That we're we're actually selling the wine from all the property. I mean, we don't have visions of going beyond our current production size, size of no. grapes, because mm-hmm. well, we then want it, it to be a family operation, It then becomes, It becomes operation. too big. Sure. Well. So um, I think we're entering a few more states where we think we'll be in the UK and Ireland shortly. Uh, we've tried Asia, that hasn't worked well for us as yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so expansion to the point where we're actually selling 15,000 cases with an expanded market. I think that's the, you know, the
1: financial goal. Mm -hmm. We we like to ask this question for... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yes. um, The industry is notoriously rough on marriages and on relationships, and so when people are still together after many years together in the industry, we like to ask, what's the secret to staying together? there was
0: a test right off as soon as we got married. As soon as we were married, my brother had designed a house at the beach for us, That's true. on the Oregon coast at Oceanside. And so together, in the rain, we built a house. We had it framed up. We did the plumbing. We did the electric. We did everything except the sheetrock, in the pouring down rain every weekend. So we passed that test. The winery was easy <laughs> after that.
2: That's what he says.
0: <laughs> well, of course. I don't. I think it's been a positive. I don't think it's been the least bit of a strain on the relationship. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, no. So we started off, and of course, I couldn't possibly give up and go home to mommy because I was seven thousand miles away. But I thought, well, you know, if anything seems difficult, I I just think, well, I can I can consider. I don't have any family here, I came here and of course I didn't have any friends when I came here, and so I can't blame it on Dennis, I can blame it on the new job or too much stress or this and that, so I thought, you know, just suck it up, plus you can't give it all up because then I was on a green card, they send me home, (laughs) I didn't want to do that. Um, Has it been a strain? No. Was it difficult occasionally? I think you were working very, very long hours and endlessly, and I do remember thinking, oh my goodness, it's Sunday morning at eight o'clock and I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and no grown-up is gonna come home till 7.30 or eight and that grown-up is gonna be exhausted from making wine, so no help there. So, I mean, it's, it's difficult, but it's doable. It was for us anyhow.
1: Where do you believe, though, Oregon wine industry is heading? What do, you, what do you see in the future for the next 5, 10, 20 years in Oregon wine?
2: Well, I don't think they're going to have to rip out all the Pinot Noir and plant them in, in British Columbia because of, though, I don't know what effect global warming will have. There will maybe be earlier harvests, better harvests, who knows? Apart from that, in the Oregon I think wine we're industry
0: we're more influenced by weather than climate. So we still have dramatically different vintages. I mean you can Mm -hmm. say well we've been harvesting in mid-September rather than early October the last couple of years. We don't have to look back very far 2013
2: 2013,
0: when we were cool again. Mm -hmm. And rainy. um, Last year we started picking on October 1. We're about two weeks Behind ripening from the Dundee Hills, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we depend a little bit more on the Indian summer type of late, late good weather. And our biggest concern every year is not a little bit of rain that happens here or there. That always happens. I mean, that drives the Californians under. The, you know, I mean, they're they're in panic if they get rain. We know we're our companies. We know we're going to get some rain. And what we don't like is when the weather caves in in the north, we get birds. Mm. You know, That's true. Birds are, and we haven't had to deal with birds in the last three years. The weather's been good enough, and the harvest dates starting October 1 have been late enough that we get the finesse and elegance into the wine. What you don't want is a short growing season. The longer the growing season, if you get everything ripe, is the ideal.
2: But, for the whole Oregon wine industry, sort of the bigger picture, I think um, I think it'll t- continue to sort of consolidate as being just a, a not just acceptable, I accept it as an excellent wine growing region, don't you think? I mean, it's really made, it's done that now, but I think it'll just get even more impressive, I would say, mm-hmm.
0: as the, well, as the wines better get better. By some huge names in the industry.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The arrival of whether it's California winemakers or All
0: French winemakers members, or you know, and so on. Some of the biggest um, admirers of Oregon are the French. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's always been a nice relationship. It's not been a competitive relationship. Mm-hmm. I was on the founding committee of IPNC, and a couple of us were involved to make sure, because originally started out, it was going to be the international. Pinot Noir competition. Mm-hmm. And we made sure it was not that. It was international Pinot Noir celebration. So why was that so important to you? Competition means you're rivals. Mm-hmm. Celebration means you're together. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what it that's the role we wanted to see that that premier event. And now it's one it's probably the premier wine event in the world in terms of a single variety party. But it's an educational party for the public.
2: <laughs> and I was just thinking, I was just traveling in Washington and tasting wine there and you knew How new, could you? New new region went
0: the Walla Walla.
2: New regions develop and expand. And so there's always that. Will the Oregon wine industry have more competition from other areas, from other areas in Oregon? Probably, and that's probably good. Still, a surprisingly low number of people in the US drink wine on a regular basis. I've forgotten what the number was, but it's not very many. But then will that expand? One would only hope so. But then is it now going to be everyone's concerned about their hearts and they shouldn't be drinking wine at all, or who knows. But I think it will develop, and there will be more competition, and I think that will be ultimately good for everybody. Yeah,
0: we We're partners in a vineyard and winery in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So we started in the year 2000. I would go fishing with my winemaker, Steve Carey, to New Zealand every winter. And after several winters, we came across a winery named Felton Road and we tried their Pinot Noir and were blown away. And we thought, gee, we should have, we haven't lost enough money in Oregon, let's have a winery (laughs) down here, too. And so we we did. And so we
2: do. So we
0: do. We partnered with a vineyard manager down there and we now have a winery and vineyard um, in central Otago.
1: How How is it similar or different to the... It's
0: entirely different
1: um you know, Central Tago and, and similar.
0: Parallel and runs similar. through Central Tago, so it's prime Pinot Noir territory. The soils are different, totally, totally different, um, and without irrigation, we have water-retentive soils.
2: Mm-hmm. They don't.
0: They don't. Without irrigation, the vineyard would be dead in a month.
2: They also have a different population of predators in the form of Bunnies, they have huge numbers of rabbits, rabbits and, are an issue. and also birds. Birds, so you
0: have to net the entire property. <laughs> so it's an entirely different operation, it's very expensive to produce a bottle of wine. We have 16 cents a gallon in excise tax, that's 40 cents for a case. In New Zealand it's $2 a bottle. <sighs>
2: So, the wine costs an awful lot it's, it's more once you get to the expensive. retail end, which makes it hard to sell here, so of we, course, in New Zealand it's easier because they're on a much more level playing yeah. field. all wines are that much more expensive but sure.
0: uh, Wow, so the label mm-hmm. is Mondillo name of our partner down there, Dominic Mondillo, mm-hmm. and we do import it
1: <laughs> do you foresee Getting back to the the last question, do you foresee Oregon getting to 1000 wineries? 150 oh, 1, wineries? It's going to oh, Absolutely. Be, I think it's going to keep growing at that rate.
0: Absolutely. I think there will be some consolidation. Mm-hmm. But I Think so, it's what?
2: 700? No, not more than that 730
0: now. 30 or so right yeah. now. Yeah. Sure. So yes. Sure. We haven't exhausted plantable property and there'll be new subregions. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think there'll be an expansion outside of Pinot Noir, I think in the southern part of the state we're going to see other varietals planted.
2: out along the I, I, you know, for instance, Walla, Walla, sorry, was just there. They, they're a much warmer climate, so more centrally on the other side of the cascades, mm-hmm. it may be up towards the gorge. there might be there are already wineries there, and there may be an expansion out there too i don't know but yes.
1: What advice would you have for someone entering the Oregon wine industry today? (laughs) I think uh,
0: as long as you're committed to the end game. I mean, you can have five acres of vineyard and sell your grapes. If you want a single-family operation, it takes a certain size to support it. If you want to be a hundred thousand cases, that's an entirely different size in your corporate structure, and it, so I think, and, no, you, and all of those I, are possible. My advice to I'm anyone, dumb. anyone starting, look to see what you want at the end of the day, and then peg that size, and you can get plenty of help.
1: Everyone's interested in helping out, even the dog down <laughs> <Even> there. <dog. laughs> All the questions I have for you, schedule. Is there anything else I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to mention at the end here? I think you did most of your homework. Thank (laughs) goodness you didn't do
0: all of your homework, so you haven't uncovered the unmentionable things we don't want to discuss. That's good.
1: That's good. (laughs) We'll leave those for the next time. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) Well, thank you both so much. This has been wonderful, and we appreciate your time and your candor, and we'll go ahead and end it there.